Hello and welcome to another podcast by Burn Dean. My name is Helen Dallimore and I'm a principal consultant at Burn Dean and our purpose is to create kinder, fairer, more productive workplaces, something that employers are having to focus on now more than ever before. In today's podcast, we're going to be exploring why, despite equal pay legislation being around since the 1970s, even in 2022, we still feel such a long way off equal pay. Globally, it is predicted it will take 136 years to close the gender pay gap, a fact I find hard to accept. The Fawcett Society, which campaigns for gender equality, has announced that Equal Pay Day this year falls on Sunday, the 20th of November. From this day on, women are on average working for free until the end of the year, as they stop earning relative to men because of the ongoing gender pay gap. This year, we've only seen a tiny decrease in the gender pay gap from 11.9% to 11.3% on average. This, combined with a cost of living crisis, an impending recession which, history shows, often hits women the hardest, as well as ever-increasing childcare costs, means that more and more women are finding the numbers just don't add up. Despite the need for diversity and businesses struggling with a severe skills shortage, women are leaving the workforce or finding too many barriers to rejoin the workforce after periods of maternity and family leave. From my professional experience as an employment lawyer and my personal experience as a mother, I have seen that the most challenge for women in the workplace is often at the point they get pregnant and have children, or even where people assume they might get pregnant and have children. Like the title of the well-known charity that's been doing so much great work in this area and recently led the National Campaign Day, the March of the Mummies, I have seen too many women get pregnant and then screwed. This is not just a problem for mummies though. This is an issue for everyone. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Blue Sky founders and directors, Sarah Lyons and Hannah Bradshaw. Bern Dean has recently partnered with Blue Sky. Blue Sky has revolutionized the parental coaching model for law firms to address female retention, but their experience and learning can be applied across the board to professional service firms and other employers. Sarah and Hannah are absolutely the people to be talking to about this. And Blue Sky's approach will create sustainable change and ensure female talent is retained and thrives. It's great to have you here, Sarah and Hannah. Hi, Helen. Thank you, Helen. What I want to talk about today is why are we still here? Sarah and Hannah, who've both got a lot of experience in, in advising around this, please can you tell me a bit more about yourselves and the work that you do? So we're both ex-employment lawyers like you, Helen, um, and obviously in our original jobs was advising businesses and individuals in terms of their employment rights and how to do things properly. We're now executive coaches focusing on the legal sector, primarily focusing on women in law and helping them navigate their careers after having a child. And so looking at the gender pay gap for us, obviously lawyers are not an impoverished sector of society, but the pipeline is very important to these firms And so looking at pipeline and what is the career defining moment that we see is is when women have children. Like Sarah, I was also an employment lawyer, so clearly strong employment lawyer group on this. And before becoming an executive coach, I spent quite a lot of time looking at the gender pay gap reporting regulations when they came in. And the data is pretty clear in terms of it being a motherhood penalty. So it's very much around that level that there is a very slight gender pay gap from the beginning of women's careers from when they leave university, but that massively grows once they have children. And most people have heard of the motherhood penalty. There's also a slight fatherhood bonus, which kind of exacerbates that difference between the two. And our company, Blue Sky, really focuses in the legal sector on that 
area. So women's careers when they become mothers, looking at why they're leaving the workforce in higher numbers at that point, but also other decisions they might make that might affect their finances. So, you know, going part time, reducing their hours, taking longer periods of maternity leave or periods out of the workforce. So we're just speaking to hundreds of women at that point in their careers when the gender pay gap is kind of really starting to widen for them. Thanks, Hannah. And we were discussing earlier as well that not only is there a motherhood penalty, but there is also a fatherhood bonus and that working fathers, when compared with working mothers and childless men, actually have advantages in terms of pay and compensation. And that's particularly the case for white, university educated, married, privileged men. Among Brits aged 42, fathers apparently receive a 21% wage bonus. Fathers are seen as having greater commitment to work, stability, and deservingness. But on the other hand, women and mothers are perceived as being exhausted and distracted at work and less productive. Now, I've seen this kind of bias play out in redundancy situations too. There seems to be a reluctance to make the man redundant. And I've heard people saying things like they are the breadwinner with family responsibilities. Yet for a working mother, their job is seen as a secondary role. So it seems like it's less of an issue to make that person redundant. So you both have as well as experience like me of, of employment law, knowing the sort of legality around sort of discrimination and things. You have your personal experiences. I know like me, you're both mothers as well. Have you had your own personal experiences of these challenges and barriers in the workplace, but you've also speaking to lots of businesses and organizations and hearing from women who are experiencing this at the moment and, and dealing with these challenges as well. So lots of different insights and perspectives here too. So we've had equal pay legislation as employment lawyers. We know all about that, worked on many equal pay cases um, <laughs> since the 1970s. It's now 2022. Why are we still here? Why is there still such a big pay gap? Hannah, I'm going to come to you for that, if that's okay. It's a big Thank question. Thank you so much. Yeah, big question. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's, it's an impossible question. Very depressing question. I think there is a perception, you know, if I kind of reflect on the conversations I've had about the pay gap in, you know, as a lawyer and since then, there is a perception that the pay gap now is kind of 15, 16%, that it's because women take time off to have children and that's not that bad. You know, 15% is not that high. It kind of is what it is. There's almost, I think, a bit of an inertia or a feeling like it can't close because that's just how the world is. And actually 15% is not that bad. You know, those are kind of some of the comments that I've heard over the years. I also saw a statistic recently that 20% of men think that the gender pay gap is just fake news. And if you look at some of the comments on LinkedIn around the gender pay gap, quite a loud 20%, I have to say, not all men, also some women. But I think partly it still exists just because it's a very crude calculation. So, you know, there's obviously a difference between equal pay, you know, being paid a different amount for the same job. And then the averages of the gender pay gap, which is kind of looking at the averages of what people are paid. And there is a perception that women go into the lower paid, often more kind of caring sectors, and men go into the higher paid, more financially lucrative sectors. And then often that's kind of where people stop thinking about it, rather than thinking, why is that the case? Why are certain sectors paid more than others? There's lots of equal pay stats looking into equally qualified roles that are more male dominated and more female dominated and the more male dominated ones often they're paid kind of twice as much as the more female dominated ones but I think it is obviously a a wider societal issue and I think the gender pay gap itself is massive and you know the impact there's a massive impact on, on women themselves and on society and on businesses 
But I think that one statistic is maybe not enough for people to just, you know, galvanize themselves and do enough to really try and close it. And I think if you look at the wealth gap and the huge inequalities in wealth between men and women, those statistics are so shocking that I think if that was more widely known, maybe there would be more done to try and close those gaps. Thanks, Hannah. So many interesting points there. And I think you're right. It's it's hard to connect with the cold data sometimes, especially when there are lots of different stats out there. And it can be quite confusing, lots depending on how the pay gap's calculated, whether you're looking at full-time, part-time work, mean or median calculations, and also across sectors where it can vary quite a lot as well. I know the sectors that we predominantly work in, both the legal sector and also the financial services, whereas where I do a lot of my work, those are some of the highest gender pay gaps even before you take into account bonuses which are often a significant part of the compensation. So just looking at the stats on paper though I agree it's sometimes hard to understand what that means day to day for people across the board and across sectors particularly challenging now especially when facing a cost of living crisis and people struggling and the challenges with the cost of childcare. It's recently been announced that the UK has the highest childcare cost in the world. I'm going to come to you, Sarah, on this. Can you share your thoughts on the impact of the gender pay gap in reality for people? Yeah, I think it's um, there's nuance, you know, based on everyone's individual circumstances. But when you look at the recession that we're now heading into, the statistic shows that women could add an additional 10% to GDP. So, you know, if I was Chancellor, I'd be looking at how to get more women into the workplace, whether that's flexibly, whether that's part-time, get more women into the workplace. And how do you do that? Make childcare affordable. It's a no-brainer. And campaigns like Pregnant Then Screwed have been shouting about it and are definitely getting louder. So I think people are starting to take note and look at countries that are doing this better. But the impact on, on women... Really, it starts when their careers, when they, before they have a child, they actually, some of the women that I've spoken to don't see any difference in the treatment that they have. And they are ambitious and they are extremely intelligent and they see their career as panning out in the same way as a male colleague. It's only when they have their first child do they then see, okay, the landscape is really different. It's not the same for me. So that affects so many things in terms of from a business perspective. If those women can't see other women making it work, they'll leave. And that affects the pipeline in those companies. And that affects diversity at the top and impact on families. Children who are in childcare perform better academically. Children, especially girls who see their mothers working, are more likely to follow into their own careers as well as positive role models. So there are so many different aspects of um, why we should all be trying to close the gender pay gap. And it's not just about money. It's, it's about society. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. And I know, Hannah, you were talking about the impact on that, the wealth, the gender <laughs> wealth gap as well, in terms of you know, how people can afford get mortgages for example yeah. and how it really impacts them I don't know if you can share a little bit about that as well yeah so the the gender pay gap as, as Sarah's kind of alluding to is really just a small part of a massive wealth gap that exists between men and women so part of that is all around becoming a mother taking time out of the workplace not paying you know national insurance contributions at a really valuable point in your career in terms of accruing those contributions so there's one statistic that's really shocking which is women on average retire with about 25% of the pension wealth that men do. And the average pension that a woman retires with is about 35,000 pounds. And there was a statistic that you need about 250,000 pounds in your pension in order to have a comfortable retirement. 
So the average woman is, you know, way, 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 way off that. And old age poverty is again, you know, much higher women are in extreme old age poverty than men because of the, the massive differences in wealth that they accrue over their lifetime. So those statistics are much bigger than the gender pay gap and are, are really quite shocking, but are all part of the same kind of societal picture. Mm. And all the same part of the same societal problem, those things have costs associated with them as well, don't they? You know, dealing with the fallout of that in terms of social care and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, those yeah. costs around the, the aging generations as well. Thank you. And just picking up on a point you said, Sarah, that, you know, about it's about getting more women into the workplace, making sure that not only will that help the economy, help businesses as well. But many of the organisations that I work for, professional services, really struggling with skills shortage, saying that it's really hard to get the right talent. There are a lot of women out there who want to work, but feel like they can't work because of the challenges, because of the barriers as well. We also know, and the data shows, that more diverse organisations, are more productive more effective you have that diversity of perspective and like you said if you can't see it you can't be it you need that diversity particularly at senior levels for people to feel like they could achieve that as well so there's so much that could be benefited from dealing with this I have to say Sarah I would love you to be the chancellor I don't know if that's potential (laughs) in the future but that would be great Another couple of things, just to build on what you were saying, Hannah, you know, we were talking about the, the wealth gap, the, the cost of childcare being so extortionate and seeing a lot. We are now officially in the UK, the, the world's most expensive country for, for childcare, which is really shocking. So we were already struggling with women in going back into the workplace and those societal expectations that it's the woman that should stay home and look yeah. after the children. And that's their, their role. Um, there's that challenge that we've got about being able to afford childcare. Now I was employed as a lawyer and decent salary. I worked part-time. I still felt like I was living in my overdraft paying for childcare. And that was some years ago. Not only that, childcare providers not being able to survive and shutting yeah. down. So there aren't even childcare options out there for people. Are you seeing the impact of that in the work that you're doing as well? Yeah, we definitely are. I think we are seeing women struggling to find, you know, spots in nurseries for their children. Obviously, the the cost is really prohibitive, especially when people have two children and they're kind of, you know, suddenly that cost is doubling. So that that does make a massive difference. I think it's a continuous conversation that comes up often in terms of women feeling that that cost is theirs to bear. You know, they really see that financially when they're thinking about, you know, the opportunity cost of working or not working that cost they're balancing that against their salary as if you know that's all on their shoulders and I think that's interesting but quite depressing that that that's how women are are automatically thinking of childcare cost as being you know their their cost versus they've created a human and it's a shared cost in terms of providing that child with an enriching experience whilst they're off working and sometimes being forced to take quite short-term decisions you know for some people you might it's hard to think about how much you can struggle through a few years because that really intensive childcare cost is not that long, but it's very high. You know, if you can make it through that, then your earning potential continues and is much higher long term. But actually now that's shifted. So there are far more people who actually just can't, you know, they can't continue to pay that for that period of time. And we're just coming out of a global pandemic as well. And I don't know about both of you but during that pandemic I felt that we went back in time when it came to roles um, parenting roles the impact of society I remember being told that we should all go back to work but childcare providers weren't open schools weren't open and there was no kind of understanding of what that actually meant for families for parents and, and I have to say predominantly women 
um, really falling back into those roles as the expectations of women were, were heavy. Um, and particularly, I would say, on women with special educational needs, children, children with disabilities, huge amount of pressures to, to just not only carry on running the household, looking after your children, homeschool your children, keep them mentally well, physically well, and get back to work whilst you're at it. I think it's safe to assume the pandemic's made this worse, but I don't suppose you can share with us, Sarah, how you've really seen that playing out in, in practice in the work that you do. Yeah, I think the, the pandemic definitely brought things into much sharper focus now that we're coming out of it, which is what's important to me. And how do I spin all these plates I'm expected to spin? Because women mainly were spinning far too many plates. And I, I remember the the man on the news, I think he was an expert on Korea and he had a child run into the run into his office <laughs> and it became obviously a massive viral story. And I remember thinking, women have been trying to do this for years. You know, as a lawyer, I remember on my day off, shutting the door on a screaming baby, having a client call. You know, we've been doing that with no fanfare for years. Most working mums, you know, can relate to that. But the pandemic really has, you know, shifted something. Yes, we are able to work remotely. We can, you know, we can work from home. But in terms of one thing going wrong can really then be a domino effect. So, women saw what happens when schools shut or what happens when children are ill or what happens when their childcare falls through and so that makes you think well I maybe can't do this or maybe I won't go for that promotion or maybe this is the wrong career for me and then those decisions are made by women which feed back into all the things we've just talked about the gender pay gap the talent pipeline when women become qualified in whatever they do they are ambitious so let's think about what's gone wrong to make this talent, this gender pay gap still exist now. And that pandemic really did exacerbate that. And I think there's going to be further brain drain from businesses of women who make the decision that it's it's all it's all too much and I can't figure out how to make it work. So when they've got talented women there, for me, it's something around help them stay because otherwise you're just looking around for someone else and the costs associated with that so I think you know a high number of women are thinking of leaving their careers and for Blue Sky one of our missions is to help women navigate that path and and, and have some clarity around the path ahead in terms of keeping that career going even through really rocky times. Thank you Sarah and it's not all on women to fix this problem though is it you know women can't be we, we can do what we can and we want to have women change makers raising these issues as well and some work we've been doing at Berndine is about creating those speak up cultures encouraging people to ask for help I did some training for working parents and carers during the pandemic to say it's not a weakness reach out for help tell people if you're struggling what you need if you need to work flexibly ask for it not always easy to do though and actually in a recession when you're worrying about whether you can yeah. keep your job when you're feeling like you may sh you should just feel lucky for the fact you have a job or that you have a job that allows you to work flexibly part-time actually that can quieten your voice and you have that potential loyalty that you feel that you're showing we've recently done a webinar Berndine about reaching out and um, talking about speaking up and that was one of the things the panelists were talking about that loyalty that people sometimes feel they have can sometimes actually make voices quieter we need to be encouraging people to feel psychologically safe so that they can raise these issues, talk to their managers and leaders and say what they need, but can't just be a, the individuals to do that. There needs to be some structural change. So what else do you think needs to happen at the individual level, whether that's businesses, leaders, what, what can make the difference? 
So I think I think there's some really basic things that businesses can do, you know, just from a gender pay gap perspective. So things like pay secrecy clauses, you know, obviously they're not permitted, but I think having that culture where pay isn't a secret, although they might not be allowed to explicitly pro prohibit anyone from talking about pay, there can be quite secretive cultures still within businesses, especially within law firms. And I think having that as an open culture, if you're paying people fairly, anyone should be able to know what you're paying anyone within your organization. You know, if you've thought about that and you can justify it as a business, you should be able to justify that to anybody. And I think, again, on an individual basis, I think it can be quite, quite a British culture. You know, we don't like asking about money or what other people are being paid. But actually, that really impacts women, you know, from a gender pay gap perspective. And I think just having those conversations with your friends and colleagues about what they're paid within the same organization as you means that you then have that data and you're then aware of any inequalities of pay within your organization but also employers knowing that that's happening means that they will challenge their pay decisions more and I think from from our perspective as coaches I think you know there's there's a lot of debate within the coaching community around kind of fixing the woman versus fixing the system and it not being all on the individual to, to change and kind of shifting that balance. And I think as coaches, that's quite difficult because you're not coaching the system. So I think, you know, I love that idea about that kind of creating a speak up culture because that is coaching the individual to change the system. And that's such a, a more accessible way as a coach to be able to change the system. From our perspective, we are, you know, we're speaking to individuals and I guess it's a kind of similar thing in terms of as a collective, you know, giving them that collective power. But I think... It is also through that coaching and through that kind of collective conversation, just having the confidence and empowerment to go back to their organizations and not feel that small voice loyalty, not put themselves out there because of kind of loyalty to their firm, but actually, you know, not accepting the status quo if that is not right or not fair, or, you know, they're not being paid what, what they're actually worth because mm. they may have some flexibility or loyalty or whatever it might be. And I can see that, you know, just from my career and my experience of how valuable it would be to have the organization sponsoring something like that to show we want you, we're investing in you, we've recognized the challenges, we want to help work through that with you, talking to you, enabling you to, to talk through some of these issues as well, and listening as well mm -hmm. as organizations listening to that I think not just assuming this stuff doesn't go on and making it sort of an individual's problems that they're not supported through they're not helped through it's a huge time in people's lives and having children I know it hugely impacted my confidence and I think there's there's an element of that impacting confidence as well that that can be long lasting can't it unless it's addressed yeah. at the time and I mean. dealt with early on and to make you feel empowered like like you said Hannah so Sarah, Blue Sky specialises in parental coaching. So what are your observations about how women experience returning to work or having taken time out for childcare and maternity leave? Yeah, we do see a wide difference in terms of how people experience that return and that reintegration back into their team. Because of the nature of the world we live in, there's so much change and volatility. We see so many women coming back to something completely different to what they left. And that can really add to anxiety and lack of confidence. The team has changed, the structure changed, the team leader has changed, their managers maybe not there anymore. And so that, you know, has an additional impact. And Sophie Clifford from Burn Dean wrote an, a, a really great article about, you know, how we can manage this better for women. And she talked to the analogy of women on a career break. She said the waters closed over her having taken the year off. And it really is 
sometimes that feeling of the, the waters have closed over me. I'm less visible. My confidence is shaken. I'm not sure who I can talk to about this. Where do I get my confidence back? I'm not the person I was before. And so that's why it's such a defining moment for, for women and their careers and the analogy of the glass door. So women coming back from that career break, we want to help them return on an equal footing. So feeling confident and feeling clear about what they want, what their aspirations are. And sometimes it's that foggy feeling of I, I'm in the fog and I'm exhausted and I, I don't, don't know how to make this work. So as coaches, we feel it's part of our, our job is to kind of clear that foggy feeling. Thanks, Sarah. I just wanted to come back to something you said, Hannah, if I may, about secrecy around pay, which is so true. It can feel really awkward to discuss pay and we're encouraged not to in the workplace. But one area where there isn't secrecy, though, is where employers ask new recruits what their historic pay was, what they got paid before. And that historic pay and asking about that is only going to bake in more unequal pay if employers are just going to just pay what they need to get somebody to join their organisation, get a woman to join an organisation. We're not going to move on from that equal pay gap, are we? So if we want to move forward, stopping asking about historic pay can help that. And some things that I see in practice as well and with the work we do about around diversity and inclusion is having some allyship as well, encouraging women to go for the promotion and actually supporting them to go for that promotion. There's lots of data that shows that women won't unless they feel like they've ticked every box on a CV um, in contrast to, to men who will. And also, I think for leaders to see the impact of their small decisions and how their unconscious biases can play out. Something we do in our sessions around inclusion, I've been doing this at large organisations and financial services businesses, is sort of a case study around a manager who's selecting somebody for a project. So not a promotion, not a new job, but just around a project. And we have three characters in that, a woman with children, a man who's struggled with mental health issues in the past, and another character who, no foreseen issues. And we have a character, you know, talk through what decisions are going on, what's going on in that per- the manager's mind as to who they choose for that job. And some of the things that you hear, you know, are, are unconscious biases, assumptions, not always coming from, the, from a negative place, but maybe from a paternalistic place or thinking, yeah. I want to protect the lady with the children who's just come back from maternity leave, actually, because she's going to have a lot on her plate, thinking that they're doing the right thing by doing that, if rather than putting them on a difficult project. Likewise, with the person who might be having, struggling with mental health issues, they want to sort of protect them from, from those challenges. But a lot of this is about making assumptions and mm-hmm. going for the person who it's easy to see will fit in, who won't be a problem. There won't be a risk associated with it. The manager won't be questioned on their decisions. So doing that natural thing we do as humans is going to that safe space. But really seeing the impact of going to who the easy person might be, who you think is going to fit in in terms of clients, they're not getting the best person necessarily. That person you go to constantly might get overwhelmed, overworked. What's the impact going to be on those people that aren't selected, on that woman who's just come back from maternity leave, wants to get her teeth into a project, wants to feel valued again? We don't know what that person's situation is, but those assumptions that are made and rather than shying away from the conversations, having those regular conversations to find out what people need, where they want to go and how you can support them to be their best is just regular things a manager can do in their day to day. You know, there, are, there will be some people who don't want the big project, but the manager's not going to know if they just assume, you know, they, all they need to do is ask. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. But there's and really I, similar statistics in law. So 
and looking at you know the the lead counsel on a big uh, corporate deal was five times more likely to be a man than a woman and it was you know nine times more likely to be two men than two women those little decisions in terms of how you staff big pieces of work over the long term play out massively in terms of the impacts on women's careers and then you know what what people decide to then pay them absolutely those level one decisions those automatic decisions you don't even realize you're making feed into your level two decisions in terms of who you're coaching, who you're informally mentoring, what you're going to pay at the end of the year, who you're going to choose for that promotion, who you're not going to choose for redundancy and has a huge impact in terms of going forward and potential earning as well for the long term. So I was just going to jump in, Helen, sorry, on that, on the case study, my, one of my questions, reflections would be, who is the manager? Is it a woman or a man? Mm. If it was a female manager, she, and if she had children, she could relate to that woman who's got the children and whether she's just as ambitious or wants the interesting projects and you know not to bang on too much about the talent pipeline but it is so important that if women are not going up that talent pipeline then all the decision makers will end up as men so mm. we men deciding the salaries men making assumptions yeah. about women coming back from leave so one of the things businesses should be doing and some are doing it is creating senior roles that can be done by men and women so whether that's a job share or whether that's a senior role that can be done part-time or flexibly, it's being flexible and creative about who are the people that are in those senior roles. And then more women will end up, you know, coming into that business and climbing their way up. There's also something around just analysing, businesses analysing, like looking at their remuneration committees or, you know, promotion or um, feedback and just analysing the diversity of those particular panels. In the majority of big organisations, they are not very diverse panels the people making the pay decisions are often mainly white men so you know just and I think I read you need more than 50% women for those pay decisions to then actually you know have an impact on gender pay and there is some research around this there about you know the Harvard studies in terms of implicit associations across the board you know if you say career and gender and if you say caregiver and gender the associations that people make in the majority of cases will be male career female caregiver still making those assumptions still in in all of us you know making those assumptions that that's what those roles are but challenging that at the senior levels making sure that those aren't playing out and you'll be pleased to hear that even the sessions that I've been running people saying you know if if this is a project that has high demands get two people to do it you know have that job sharing have those different people on that working together it actually makes business sense to do that as well. Hannah are there any examples of organizations or sectors that are managing to close the gender pay gap or are investing in this and addressing these issues successfully? Yeah, so I think there's some organisations that are doing some quite interesting things in terms of trying to change cultures and structures. So we've worked with an American law firm where, you know, this was really driven by one individual, but one partner really kind of made a great PR campaign in their London office for men taking shared parental leave. And they went from zero men having ever taken any shared parental leave in 2018, 2019, every single dad in the office took more than three months of shared parental leave. And, you know, he really achieved this by showing that, you know, men on the partnership track who were about to make partner, it wouldn't just hinder them, it would actually help them get to partnership and really did a great PR campaign about showing that you were involved in your family really showed that you were a better rounded person and actually more deserving and better able to kind of tackle the challenges of being a partner at that firm, which was really successful. So I'd say just having, you know, individuals, even just one person can make a massive difference to those kind of cultural issues. 
And then there's another law firm, really interestingly, that doesn't have chargeable hours and has the highest number of female equity partners of any law firm. I think they actually have more female equity partners than male equity partners, which is massively out of step with the rest of the market. But I think, you know, from we speak to lots of lawyers kind of feeds into the fact that generating that revenue really happens outside of their normal working hours, which are already extremely long. And, you know, if you've got family pressures and and kind of caring responsibilities, being able to fit that in is really difficult. And having a different, more egalitarian structure in terms of generating revenue has massively enabled women at that organization to kind of succeed and thrive. And then there's, there's the example of Salesforce, who... They, they are an American company and under American legislation had to do a massive equal pay audit. And in 2015 and 2017 discovered not just gender inequalities, but also inequalities in terms of ethnicity pay gaps as well. And they spent nine million pounds over two years fixing those inequalities and making sure that there were no more kind of structural pay gaps within their organization and their CEO was was really shocked to discover that there were those pay gaps you know he felt really confident that his organization was fair and that there were no pay gaps within it but actually you know on discovering it unlike quite a large number of employers who would discover these pay gaps and kind of hide them or deny that they exist he he really tried to fix them and was able to fix them so I think does show that actually it's a problem that can be fixed if an organization really wants to. Thank you Hannah yeah and you're absolutely right to flag that sort of the intersectionality of some of these issues as well. We talk about the gender pay gaps, there are lots of work to be to be done around that, but the different impact it can apply across different areas and different characteristics too, um, as well as ethnicity. You were talking about recently in the, the press, there was lots of discussion about the class pay gap as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this plays into sort of assumptions, unconscious biases around lots of different areas and needing to address and tackle that as well. So looking at reporting and that data capture across many different areas to understand what's really going on, what's really driving this as well, to ensure that there is equality and actually equity when it comes to compensation for people. Another thing you mentioned there is about the structural side of things, Hannah, and actually looking at the the way an organisation structures it and the demands on people and the expectations of people, specifically in law firms, as you were mentioning about that chargeable hours structures and what a difference taking away that impacted. I've seen that across the pandemic in many of the sessions that I worked on. There's been a real shift in focus from that presenteeism to, to productivity, actually, and outputs. And people are more productive in different environments and in terms of hybrid working, flexible working. That's something that I think is not only going to benefit the gender pay gap, allowing people to work in a way that works best for them, and work flexibly, but that everyone's expecting this isn't a gender issue people are expecting to have some flexibility from their employers into in terms of how they work when they work um, across the board so in terms of addressing that skills gap that's another area that employers need to focus on as well and looking at it from starting the employment relationship on that footing it not being something that somebody has to stay in employment for earn their stripes and then ask if they can work flexibly at some point in the future now that is something that is being looked at as part of the Flexible Working Private Members Bill that is making its way through Parliament at the moment. There is also new proposed legislation, another private members bill, to give pregnant women a longer period of protection where they need to be prioritised for suitable vacancies in a redundancy situation. Whether it makes it onto the statute books remains to be seen. It's also being criticised by groups like Maternity Action as not going far enough to provide real protection. 
campaigners are also campaigning for legislative changes for standalone properly paid paternity pay to enable more fathers to take paternity leave and to help tackle the motherhood penalty. Whilst it may feel hard for the majority of us to change the decisions being made in Parliament, instead of getting depressed by the statistics and seeing the gender pay gap is inevitable, there are things we can all do to help address these issues and challenge the status quo in our own workplaces. Individuals can push for more equality and speak up and ask for change. Leaders can make a positive impact and recognise and confront their unconscious biases and be supportive allies for women in the workplace and recognise the challenges they are facing. Businesses can sponsor, champion diversity and inclusion and invest in structural, real change. As Sarah and Hannah have highlighted, such change doesn't just benefit women. It benefits everyone. It benefits businesses. It benefits the economy and it benefits society. Thank you so much, Sarah and Hannah. I've really enjoyed talking with you both and hearing all your valuable experience and insight. I'm sure there are many more conversations we will have on this. And if anyone listening to this podcast would like to discuss any of these issues or wants to explore how we can support you, bring about change in your own workplaces, then please do get in touch with us at hello at burndean.com or hello at wearebluesky.co.uk or you can just direct message us on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening.